Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 27, Genesis chapter 27. Tonight we get into Genesis chapter 27. And, and let's begin. Um, I'd like to quote a profound statement made by the great 19th century Jewish Christian scholar and perhaps the man whose readings I think have influenced me second maybe only to the Torah itself All right, and that's Alfred Edersham and he says this he says if there is any point on which we should anxiously be on our guard it is that of tempting God we do so tempt the Lord when, listening to our own inclinations, we put once more to question that which he has already clearly settled. Okay, Where God has decided, never let us doubt or lag behind. Now, how often we have all suffered from seeing clearly God's requirement of us, but asking him, for another and different decision right, that better suits our personal agenda, our view of what ought to be. This is what Isaac did, and it created nothing but trouble. Open your Bibles now to Genesis 27. It's a rather long chapter, and I'm going to pretty much try to get through all of Genesis 27 tonight. So um, I'm going to read it from beginning to end. And it's an interesting story. Genesis 27. In the course of time, after Yitzhak, Isaac, had grown old and his eyes dim so that he couldn't see, he called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. And he answered, Here I am. He said, Look, I'm old now. I, I don't know when I'll die. Therefore, please take your hunting gear, your quiver of arrows and your bow, Go out into the country and get me some game. Make it tasty, the way I like it, and bring it to me to eat. Then I will bless you before I die. Rivka was listening when Yitzhak spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went out to the country to hunt for game and bring it back, she said to her son Yaakov, Jacob, Listen, I heard your father telling Esau your brother, Bring me game and make it tasty so I can eat it. Then I will give you my blessing in the presence of Adonai before my death. Now pay attention to me, my son, and do what I tell you. Go to the flock and bring me back two choice kids. I'll make it tasty for your father the way he likes it. And you will bring it to your father to eat so that he will give his blessing to you before his death. Yaakov answered Rivka, his mother, Look, Esau's hairy, but I, I have smooth skin. Suppose my father touches me. He'll know I'm trying to trick him, and I'll bring a curse on myself, not a blessing. But his mother said, But your curse be on me. Just listen to me and go get me the kids. So he went, got them, brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared them in the tasty way his father loved. Next, Rivka took Esau, her, old, her older son's best clothes, 
which she had with her in the house and put them on Yaakov, her younger son. And she put the skins of the goats on his hands and on the smooth parts of his neck. Then she gave the tasty food and the bread she'd prepared to her son Jacob. He went into his father and said, My father, and he replied, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've done what you've asked me to do. Get up now, sit down and eat the game, and then give me your blessing. Yitzhak said to his son, How did you find it so quickly, my son? And he answered, Adonai, your God, made it happen that way. Yitzhak said to Yaakov, Come here, come close to me so I can touch you, my son, and know whether you are in fact my son Esau or not. Jacob approached Isaac, his father, who touched him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are Esau's hands. However, he didn't detect him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands, so he gave him his blessing. He asked, Are you really my son Esau? And he replied, I am. He said, Bring it here to me, and I will eat my son's game so that I can give you my blessing. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come close now and kiss me, my son. He approached and kissed him. Yitzhak smelled his clothes and blessed Yaakov with these words. See, my son smells like a field which Adonai has blessed. So may God give you dew from the heaven, the richness of the earth, and grain and wine in abundance. May peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. May you be Lord over your kinsmen. Let your mother's descendants bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. But as soon as Isaac had finished giving his blessing, blessing to Jacob, when Jacob had barely left his father's presence, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. He too had prepared a tasty meal and brought it to his father. And now he said to his father, let my father get up and eat from his son's game so that you may give me your blessing. Isaac, his father, said to him, who are you? And he answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Yitzhak began trembling uncontrollably and said, Then who was it that took game and brought it to me? I ate it all just before you came and I gave my blessing to him. That's the truth. And the blessing must stand. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst into loud, bitter, sobbing, Father, bless me too, he begged. He replied, your brother came deceitfully and took away your blessing. Esau said, his name Jacob really suits him because he has supplanted me these two times. He took away my birthright and here now he has taken away my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you saved a blessing for me? Yitzhak answered, Esau, look, I have made him your Lord. I have given him all his kinsmen as servants, and I've given him grain and wine to sustain him. What else is there I can do for you, my son? And Esau said to his father, Have you only one blessing, my father? Father, bless me too. And Esau wept aloud, and Isaac, his father, answered him, Here, here, your home will be of the richness of the earth and the dew of the heaven from above. You will live by your sword and you will serve your brother. But when you break loose you will shake his yoke off your neck.
Esau hated his brother because of the blessing his father had given him. Esau said to himself, The time for mourning my father will soon come. Then I'll kill my brother, Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rivka. She sent for Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Here, your brother Esau is comforting himself over you by planning to kill you. Therefore, listen, my son, listen to me. Get up and escape to Lavan, my brother, in Haran. Stay with him a little while until your brother's anger subsides. Your brother's anger's anger will turn away from you, and he will forget what you did to him. Then I'll send and bring you back from there. Why should I lose both of you on the same day? Rivka said to Isaac, I'm sick to death of Hittite women. If Yaakov marries one of these Hittite women like those who live here, my life won't be worth living. Well, this chapter opens with the old, blind, sickly Isaac telling Esau to go hunt some meat as part of a commemorative meal that was part and parcel with the blessing Isaac wanted to bestow upon Esau. Now, this, of course, was in no wise what God had told Isaac through his wife, Rebekah, that was to occur. Had Isaac, all those years ago, simply decided to ignore what his wife had told him? Perhaps skeptical? I mean, had he formed such a bond with Esau that he could not bear the thought of taking this all-important blessing from his beloved son, knowing it would humiliate and crush him? Or did he think that perhaps God was going to allow him to simply go on his own way, rebel, and bless it all anyway? Well, I must readily admit that after several years of study and reading the wonderful works of some of the great Hebrew sages of old, my conclusion about all this has changed a little bit over time. It is interesting that the matter of the birthright, that is, who would be Behor, the firstborn, is really never the issue in this narrative. Okay. Some of you may be scratching your heads thinking then, what is this all about if it's not about the firstborn birthright? Or better yet, you might say, well, my Bible seems to make it seem all about the birthright. Well, we'll deal with that all right, as we go. But let me show you something that might ease your mind just a little bit. Take a look at verse 36. Genesis 27, 36. says, Then he, meaning Esau, said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me two times. First, he took away my birthright. And now, he's taken away my blessing. And he said, Have you not reserved a blessing for me? See, by the time we reach this chapter, the issue of the birthright has already been resolved. Okay. Reluctantly, Isaac seems to have accepted it 
at some point before this scene, and Esau was most aware that that was the case. Now, my study of birthright and blessings shows that these two things, the firstborn rights and the blessing, aren't always necessarily connected, and often they're not. Okay. The matter of the birthright, for the most part, is settled automatically at the birth of the first boy child. Okay. Certainly, if that child should die, then it muddies the waters. But in, in, invariably, the second boy child would automatically gain the right his deceased brother held. And if the second boy died, well, then the third would gain the birthright generally and so on. You know, there would be no ceremony nor ritual attached to that. Okay? So well was this thoroughly embedded all right, in both law and tradition of that era. So the traditional blessings bestowed upon the family all right, near the end of that family leader's death meant something else. Okay. In other words, it's not so much that at the end of the life of the current family leader that everyone waits breathlessly to see who's going to be the new family leader. That isn't how it was. Who will be the designated firstborn? I mean, we can kind of all picture the greedy family members sitting in the circle, all right, waiting in great anticipation as the lawyer gets ready to read the will. Can't we? All right, like children staring at gifts under a Christmas tree, hoping but not at all certain what they're each going to get. Okay, we need to understand that that's not how it was then. Okay, we need to understand that the firstborn didn't get everything, just the largest portion. The Bible calls it the double portion. Okay, and what that double portion and uh, rather along with that double portion, the firstborn gets the right of leadership over the clan as well. That goes with it. Now, what amounted to a double portion undoubtedly varied depending on the situation. Double doesn't necessarily mean that the firstborn son gets precisely double of what his brothers get. Okay. It doesn't necessarily mean that an exact inventory of wealth was done to make sure that each got exactly their proper share. It could and probably did happen that way in, in later eras. More often, these portions were approximates. A double portion could have been anything from a little bit more than the others to practically everything of value. It was all up to good old dad. So what we're witnessing here in chapter 27 is about the blessing, not a decision about who's firstborn. Okay? And the blessing in this case is about dividing up the wealth. And just like for us today, and probably since time immemorial for everyone, the inheriting children generally feel that if one gets more than the others, that means one was more loved. And if one gets less than the others, then it means he or she is less loved or valued than the others. Well, we're told in verse 1 that Isaac was very old. 
when he decided to perform the blessing. He was nearly blind as well. Now, was he near death? He said he was. He probably thought so, though it didn't prove to be the case. Okay, he was 137 years old at this time. But stop and think for a second what that infers as to the age of Jacob and Esau. They were born, we're told, when Isaac was 60. So these boys were in their mid to late 70s at this time. Well, that sure destroys these wonderful mental pictures, doesn't it? We have these virile young men being led around by their sly mother, all right, or this athletic Esau out wrestling game down to bring to his dad. That was not the case at all. These were old men. Now, Rivka, the mother of these twin boys, overhears Isaac's instructions to the obviously delighted Esau, and she conspires to overturn Isaac's intentions. Now, Esau was continuing to prove his unfitness to carry on the divine line that God had begun with Abraham. Rebecca was likely thinking that if that dawdling old husband of hers was going to refuse to carry out God's will, she would, doing whatever it took, even if it included deception, she was going to help him out. I mean, after all, doesn't this end, ordained by God, justify whatever means it takes to achieve it? I mean, wouldn't God rather have the goal of his plan accomplished and all of the stuff that goes with it, even if it was wrong in the doing to make it happen? I mean, this has to be one of the most difficult parts of a believer's walk with God. Putting our full trust in him to accomplish his will, even if at the moment all of our intellect and senses and logic and sense of fairness and life experience tells us it can't happen with the circumstances at hand. It just can't happen. Well, Rebecca tells Jacob what's happening in his father's tent and he joins with her plan and the plan is for Jacob to impersonate Esau now Jacob's a little bit reluctant not because he thinks what they're doing may be wrong but rather that they may be discovered then he'll have to bear the consequences now going so far as to put on Esau's clothing even attaching goat skins to his arm and neck to imitate Esau's naturally hairy body, Jacob goes into his father's tent. And, and skeptical at first, Isaac's senses tell him something's not quite right here. But Isaac is convinced enough that indeed this is Esau before him, so he pronounces the blessing upon Jacob. Now the Hebrew word used here for blessing is berachah. Right? And it is a very common Hebrew word blessing that we're going to find throughout the Old Testament. Let's read now the words of this Berachah, the blessing that Isaac pronounced upon Jacob, all the while thinking it was Esau. Take a look at Genesis 27, verse 28. Genesis 27, verse 28. He says to him, Now may God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be master of your brothers. 
and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, without doubt, this blessing includes certain words and terms that rightly confer blessing on the Bekor, the firstborn. For instance, be a master over your brothers. So while Isaac was not arguing over the technical aspect of who was designated as firstborn, he was using his prerogatives to, do, to decide exactly who got what. And it was more or less his intention to give Esau much of what the firstborn should have traditionally received. Now, this is something like when, after World War II, President Truman relieved General MacArthur of his command. Okay. General MacArthur didn't stop being a five-star general or a man of great power and position. President Truman just made it so that MacArthur had nothing and no one to exercise that power over. Okay. Isaac isn't trying to say that Jacob isn't the firstborn. He's just trying to take away most of the rights of the firstborn and give them to Esau. Just another way to skin a cat. And by the way, Later on, as we get to Genesis 48, 49, and 50, you're going to see Jacob do the same thing. He's going to totally rearrange it. Hmm? Now, further, it seems that most times that the Beracha, the blessing, is pronounced, it is more or less making official that which by tradition, was long ago settled. I mean, for instance, a fairly rich man sets up a will. He signs a power of attorney, all right, that the will is never to be changed under any circumstances by anyone including himself. And then he inconveniently lives another 10 years. Okay. The matters have all been settled. They've all been decided. They've been written in stone. Now, how much each inheritor is to receive has been determined. It's not changeable. But guess what? Nothing takes effect until he dies. And that will is read. Okay? This blessing here, this beracha, is similar to the reading of the will in that although things were long ago decided, no transfer of wealth or authority had yet taken place. That's what happens in the blessing. It wasn't the moment of decision, it was the moment of transfer. Okay? Well, the deed is done. Jacob has received the blessing God intended for him. He held on to the birthright. God had God told his mother he'd have, and of course he received authority, the power to lead the clan. But no doubt Jacob felt none of that inner joy and sense of humility before God that should have been present after being anointed as the bearer of the line of covenant promise that was so important for the future of all mankind. Because Jacob had done wrong in making sure to obtain it. His deception was sin against God. And his conscience probably dogged him for the rest of his life. And it's amazing. Jacob went through all these contortions, pulled off all these hurtful deceptions only to receive that 
which never could have been denied him anyway because the Lord had already determined it. It was done. But now the other shoe drops. Esau arrives back from his successful hunt. He prepares the meat. He goes into his father's tent ready and eager to receive his blessing. Surprised Isaac knows immediately he's been duped. And though he feels for Esau, there's nothing that can be done for a blessing of this sort once given because it's irreversible for any reason. Esau is distraught and he, bled, uh, he begs in tears all right, for some kind of blessing. Now, now let me remind you again of the words of verse 36 where Esau speaks of two things that had been taken from him. His birthright, and he says, and now you take away my blessing. And he speaks of the firstborn birthright loss as a thing of the past, and the loss of the blessing meant for him as a thing happening presently, now. Esau did not go into the tent expecting to be named the firstborn. Esau just wanted lots of wealth and power. He didn't want the hassles and burdens associated with being the Bekor. He just wanted the material rewards that the firstborn was entitled to. Well, now Esau, uh, rather Isaac blesses Esau. But he's very limited now in what he can even offer Esau. The blessing Isaac gives him takes place in verses 39 and 40. Now, the words in verse 39 have been under scrutiny by various scholars for many years. And I'd like you to pay very close attention to something that has led followers of Yahweh, Jewish and Christian, into trouble time and time again. Okay. It is that we attempt to resolve what seems like a contradiction in the Bible and it winds up becoming doctrine and tradition. And that doctrine and tradition leads us down pathways that blinds us to the scriptural truth. Tradition renders verse 39. Everybody take a look at your Bibles, please. All right. Look at verse 39. And all your Bibles won't say it the same way. Tradition renders verse 39 to be read, your home will be the richness of the earth and the dew of the heavens from above. Sometimes it will say fatness instead of richness. Yet literally, the verse reads, behold, away from the richness of the earth and away from the dew of the heavens will be your home. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? If you have an NASB, that's what it says. Why the obvious difference? Why would even the Hebrews read right over the away part and rationalize it out of existence? Okay. Why would Gentile Christians follow suit? I mean, there doesn't seem to be a clear-cut reason that one could hang his hat on, and there certainly seems to be no conspiracy involved. The NASB changed decades ago to reflect this literal translation of away from. Okay. Alfred Edersheim stated over a hundred years ago right, that this verse had been mistranslated. 
you got to remember this guy was raised in a traditional Jewish home. Okay? When it showed Esau going to a fertile and lovely place with ample rains. Okay? There seems to be a long-standing effort to tie verse 28 showing that Isaac appears to be giving a very similar blessing to Jacob as to Esau about where they will each live. A blessing that Isaac gave in an attempt to inject fairness and an attempt to make up for the injustice done to Esau by his brother Jacob. But taking one look at the literal original Hebrew makes that unlikely as entirely different words are used to describe the nature of blessing to Jacob and the nature of blessing to Esau. In verse 28, the Hebrew shows God through Isaac actively giving richness of land to Jacob. And in verse 39, it shows in Hebrew that Isaac is telling Esau he will be held away from richness of land. And when one realizes that Edom, the land of Esau, is located at the south end of the um, Salt Sea or the Dead Sea down in this area, and then stretches a short distance into the Arabian Peninsula, which was at that time and always has been arid and an inhospitable land, it's puzzling why this verse was ever translated incorrectly as showing Esau being blessed to live in a lovely, fertile place. Now one begins to suspect that at one time long ago there was sympathy for Esau and his plight, and indeed, turns out the ancient rabbis and scribes seem to have felt sorry for Esau to varying degrees. You see this all through their works. And when we step back and think about this whole episode, I mean, can't we find some pretty good reasons for compassion for Esau? I mean, after all, his destiny seems to have been set before birth. Right? And Jacob was hardly up and up in this whole manner himself. Plus, it is certain that Esau's mother openly favored and sided with Jacob all of his life. So was it God's intention to curse Esau or merely to not bless him with all the rights of the firstborn? These are the questions the ancient scribes and sages were wrestling with. Well, Rashi, a highly regarded Hebrew sage who was greatly influential on modern Judaism lived during the time of the first Christian Crusades in the 11th century AD. He had a lot to say about Esau. Right? And in an obvious attempt to validate the earlier sages' sympathetic views on Esau, Rashi wrote that he saw Esau as a type. He equated Esau currently in his day to Italy and Rome. And he equated Jacob to Israel and Jerusalem. I mean, that makes a lot of sense for his day and time because the church was the Roman Catholic Church based in Rome, Italy. And the Catholic Church had for centuries 
been the primary persecutor of the Jewish people. During the first crusade, when Rashi, which Rashi personally witnessed, okay, thousands upon thousands of Jews were forcibly converted to Christianity by the crusaders. Many more thousands were martyred simply for being Jews, and thousands more were put to the sword when the crusaders finally reached Jerusalem. Okay. Rashi went so far as to explain that the blessing that we see in Genesis 27:39 that speaks of the fatness and the richness of the land for Esau refers to the wonderfully rich volcanic soils of Italy and Rome. Further, that because it was well understood by all the sages that Esau was destined to become an enemy of Israel, that Esau represents the Roman Catholic Church. That's how Rashi saw it. Now anyway, this traditional Hebrew view of Esau that shows both sympathy at his plight as well as acknowledgement of his destiny as an enemy of Israel shows up in some attempt to mush the words of verse 39 around to indicate that Esau at least received some favor from God through his father Isaac. But history shows that the reality is quite different. History shows that the literal words of verse 39 is what played out. Now recently I've heard some speakers and read some articles attempting to rationalize away the rather obvious mistranslation of verse 39 and you may have heard these same things because it is now being acknowledged across the academia that indeed it does say away from the blessings and away from the richness. Indeed it does. It's Esau's um, fate. By saying that fatness, when it says from the fatness of the land, is really just another way of saying oily. All right. In other words, saying that fat could also mean oil. All right. The idea here is to explain how it is that the Bible says that Esau would be found in a territory called Edom. All right. And he was destined to live, but yet he was destined to live in a place of richness, which by definition would lead him to prosperity. But the fact is that Edom has always been a desert wasteland where eking out a living was tough. So by changing the words from fatness to oiliness, then voila. All right, we see how rich the Arab sheikhs are because of their oil reserves, and this fixes the whole problem. Wrong. Wrong. Even if that horribly strained argument of changing fat to oil was workable, which, by the way, in the Hebrew language it is not. All right, it only works that way in other languages. All right, the part of the Arabian Peninsula um, that was included in the territory of Edom, ha Edom has no oil. Okay, the southern part of Jordan is where. I've got this circled up here for you. This is the area of Edom. And I know it's a little hard to see, but you see on this map, it looks like it's got measles up here, all these little dots. These are the oil fields. 
right? This is the Arabian Peninsula. This is Northern Africa. And you see some oil here. Well, look at here. There isn't any oil anywhere around where Edom was. There is no oil in that part of the Sinai. There is no oil in that part of the Negev. There is no part oil in that part of the Paran. There is no oil in that part of the Arabian Peninsula. It don't exist. All right, so we can just throw that one right down the drain. We cannot equate the fat of the earth to oil. It doesn't work. All it means is that expression, the fat of the earth, which you'll sometimes see as saying, as it'll say the richness of the earth. It's just an idiom. It's an expression. All right, and it means the finest fruits and produce from the earth or something like that. In any case, when one correctly translates the first part of Esau's blessing, that Esau and his descendants will be held away from fertile lands, the final part of it and Esau's response to the whole thing makes a lot more sense. His blessing resembled more a curse than a blessing. I mean, had Esau been happily blessed, I mean, look at those words that, that are typically written down. I mean, he was going to have all this richness of land and things were going to be wonderful. All right, would he have been so determined to kill Jacob? I mean, it's pretty hard to see. All right, but being cursed that he was going to reside away from the fat of the land, cursed that he would live in a fairly desolate place where it doesn't often rain, one could see why he'd burn with homicidal anger an enemy towards his conniving brother. Now, this curse to be separated from rich lands combined with the blessings given, given to Jacob served to set Esau, later to be called Edom, against Jacob, later to be called Israel, for all time. And that is certainly what we have seen played out in history. Even in the time of Jesus, some 1,800 years after Genesis 27 and the blessings of Isaac upon his twin sons, the hated King Herod, infamous King Herod, was himself a result of the curse on Esau. Because at the time of Jesus, the land of Edom was known in the Greek language as Idumea. And Edom was King Herod's people. He was called King Herod the Idumean. Right. You see, that evil and bloodthirsty King Herod, the King Herod who sold out to Rome and became their puppet, was a descendant of Esau. Okay. The Bible shows how Esau mixed with the descendants of another group of people who would have had very good reason, at least in their minds, for hating Israel eternally. And that group of people Esau mixed with was the descendants of Ishmael. Okay, And remember the story of Ishmael, that earlier tragic story in Genesis of a physically firstborn son of the greatest patriarch, Abraham, being rejected and denied the right to carry the mantle as the inheritor of the covenant promise. 
And we'll discuss some of that mixing as we get to the later chapters of Genesis. But for now, just know that much, though by no means all, of the Arab world carries with them the genes of Esau. Okay. In particular, a large segment of the Turkish population is related to Esau. A good portion of the Syrian population and the Kurdish people of Iraq are related to Esau. I mean, we should all at least have heard of the Ottoman Empire, right, which ruled the Middle East for many centuries, from about 1300, just after the Crusades, uh, to about World War I. Okay. The Ottomans were a dominant tribe in the nation of Turkey. Okay. And it was those particular Turks who were descendants of Esau. Okay. And of course, these Turks are Muslim. Right. And we know from Bible prophecy that the Turks are going to play a very primary role all right, in the events of Revelation as enemies of Israel. So it all starts coming into play. Now, the thing we must also understand is that the majority of Muslims in the world are related to Esau, even the ones in Afghanistan. Okay, so this enmity that would occur between the twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, almost 4,000 years ago, has everything to do with the condition of the world right now and what led up to that current situation and how it's going to all play out leading up to and through the Great Tribulation. Now, looking a little bit more at the blessing, or really a curse that Esau was given, it says that by your sword you shall live. In other words, violence and pillaging shall be Esau's way of gaining wealth and prosperity. And as I have explained on a number of occasions, these prophetic blessings that we see particularly early on in the Bible have more effect on that person's future descendants than on the person who originally received that blessing or curse. And that's what we find as we follow the progress of Esau's line. Esau's descendants didn't become shepherds. They became conquerors and bands of robbers who descended on caravans that passed through their lands. War became their way of life. War is even at the heart of what is now their religion, Islam. Further, the blessing also says that you shall serve your brother, but when you grow restive, you shall break the yoke from your neck. See, it was King David who was the first descendant of Jacob to rule over the descendants of Esau, okay, as prophesied in the blessing of Isaac. Edom wore the yoke of Israel's domination on their neck from about 1000 B.C. to about 735 B.C., a longer period of time than the United States has been a nation. It was King Ahaz of Judah who lost control over the Edomite nation. And not since then have the descendants of Esau admitted to being under the control of an Israelite. And hopefully, this hopes to 
This helps to explain to you the determination of today's so-called Palestinians to be free of any control under the thumb of the reborn nation of Israel. Because most Palestinians recognize that they are indeed descendants of Esau. Okay. Well, this chapter ends with Rebekah insisting that Jacob leave immediately to escape Esau's wrath. She tells him that he should go back up north to Mesopotamia to her family, specifically to her brother Laban's home. She approached Isaac with this idea and convinced him it was a prudent course of action, not by suggesting to Isaac that Esau might kill Jacob, but rather by appealing to Isaac's hatred of the pagan tribes that surrounded them. Because Esau had sometime earlier married two Canaanite women, Hittites to be specific. Right? And this tormented Isaac and Rivka. Rivka told Isaac that they needed to send Jacob away lest he do the same thing. And he most certainly agreed. Remember though, as you're thinking of Jacob fleeing up north, this was not a couple of parents sending their poor little teenage son all right, off to go fend for himself. Jacob was in his late 70s when this all happened. Okay, that'll do it for tonight.